Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm going to be turning over my host duties to my business partner, Anthony McCarran, who's going to be interviewing me on a topic that's important to CFOs, VP of Finances, and HR Management, which is large group cost containment. Anthony is the Vice President of Client Services and a shareholder of Advanced Benefit Consulting. He oversees all client service functions, account management functions, 5500 filing, quoting services, proposal generation services, and claim services with carriers and TPAs. Thank you, Anthony, for joining me today and taking over my seat in the host chair. Thanks, Dorothy. Uh, first, let's talk about plan decision makers. They're always looking at ways to reduce their health plan costs. What are the first things that should be done to assist them? Well, the best way to reduce health plan costs is to really examine the highest cost drivers into the health plan. Uh, that includes facility costs, hospitalizations, surgeries, outpatient procedures, managing chronic conditions, and managing overall prescription costs. So how does a group do all that? Not all carriers work with a broker or an employer to provide all the information they need to manage these cost factors. Well, the best ability to dive into all this comes from the ability to self-fund. Um, that way it allows you to manage the costs and not just pay the premium. Not all groups are good self-funded candidates, however, uh, but those that are should definitely take a serious look at it because that's where the savings lie and it allows you to have the ability to control your own financial destiny. Um, there are some things that you can do in the fully insured market environment also, but there, there's not as much there as there is in the self-funded market. We can address those later. Historically, what makes up a good self-funded candidate? Well, first and foremost, group size. Uh, usually you want to look at self-funding over 100 lives because once you reach 100, you're generally um, based on your own claims experience anyway. So if you're based on your own claims experience, that's usually a starting point. You also want to look at age distribution. Traditionally, we've looked at groups uh, with less than 35% over the age 50 were the best candidates. That can vary, of course. Uh, but you want to look at younger populations. Obviously, younger populations generally have less claim costs than older populations. You want to take a look at your financial stability. And the bottom line on that is, can you withstand the worst case scenario? You're always given a worst case scenario with uh, self-insured plans and, and quoting, and you just want to make sure you can handle that. You want to see if you can get claims experience or at least large claim information before you go out to bid the first time because that's really super important. Obviously, once you're self-insured, you're going to have claims experience um, all over the place constantly. It's, it's, a, it's a given part of a self-funded plan. And you also want to take a look at whether or not the employer is risk-averse or not because some, some employers, no matter how good of candidate they may look at, if they just don't want to do it and they don't want to take any risk, then this probably isn't a good decision for them. Okay, let's say that a group is a good candidate on paper. How much can an employer expect to save by self-funding? Well, it really varies by plan design, by the type of funding and financing that they use, whether or not they want to use a PPO, an EPO, a reference-based pricing plan, whether or not they put in the right vendors like claim payers, utilization management companies, etc. All those vendors are really, really key elements that we'll talk more about. 
Uh, but if the plan is designed well and all the components are in place, an employer can usually see a savings of anywhere from 10 to 30% by self-funding uh, as long as they're looking at uh, similar plans, 90% to 90%, 80% to an 80% plan. But the savings are usually pretty good. Um, if you're a self-funded first-year group, keep in mind, you may not get as as competitive as quote as you'd like, um, but that's because you don't have or may not have proper claims experience. So the bottom line there is you want to look at the worst case scenario and understand that sometimes in a first year, your worst case scenario might be slightly higher than the fully insured premium that you're currently under, and you have to determine whether or not that's an option. Um, if the expected cost is at 75% or less, however, it's usually worth the risk because how this works is they quote you a worst case scenario in claims when they quote the case, and it's generally based on 125% of the expected claim cost. So you can back out that 25%. Um, so if you can target then the 75% is your projected claim cost, and then add that to your fixed cost. And if that works well with your with your budgeting, then it's usually a, a pretty good a pretty good risk. How does a group get closer to the 25 to 30% savings as opposed to the 10 to 15% savings? Well, that really depends on the self-funded plan. Again, I mentioned before you have a choice of um, vendors and you want to make sure you pick the right vendors. Your choice of your third-party administrator, your choice of your stop-loss carrier, your utilization review company, your pharmacy benefit manager for prescription drugs, all of those take a huge part in this. You want to put in the best partners to give yourself the biggest chance of having the best possible results. Um, the thing about self-funding is you know what you're paying for. You get to see the data. You get to see the claims amounts. You get to see your trends, your utilization patterns. Um, and then you can use data analytics to better manage that claim cost. Uh, and I want to go back to what we talked about in the beginning, the main cost factors. If you can manage those, you can keep your costs down. So focus on the facility costs, again, your hospitalizations, your surgeries, your outpatient surgery centers. Um, and then you want to look at your chronic conditions and how can you best manage those. And you generally do that through utilization review, and we'll talk more about that. And then managing the Rx costs. In the facilities, your inpatient and outpatient surgeries, that's usually one of the largest um, percentages of your overall expense to your health plan. The problem with facilities is that you generally don't know the true cost of that, the charges within the facility. Um, our current system lacks transparency. You know, basically, if you're fully insured, you pay a premium and you don't know what you're getting. Um, even if you're self-funded, you may not know what you're getting. But you have more options available to you in self-insurance so that you can actually dive in and see that transparency and see how you can manage that best. And we'll talk about that as well. You've been a long-term supporter of transparency for the past few decades. Yeah, I really have. And, and that's why I like reference-based pricing. We'll talk more about that. But reference-based pricing allows you to know what your costs are uh, by using a standardized rating system, which is Medicare. Um, use those rates, and then you just pick a percentage above Medicare and pay your providers that. Usually in the hospital facility side, it's 140 to 150% of Medicare. Um, and then Medicare trend only goes up 1% to 2% per year. And when you compare that to the to uh, plans that aren't using Medicare rates, they generally have a trend rate of 8% to 12% a year. So put that together with reference-based pricing, that allows you to actually see the dollars being spent. Um, a lot of reference-based pricing models out there allow you to actually see the true cost of the plan um, and be able to compare them from one hospital to the next. If you're, you have, for example, three hospitals in your area that provide the same service, the same surgical uh, procedure or whatever, in certain reference-based pricing plans, you can actually compare them and see them you know, hospital A charges this for this procedure, hospital B charges this much, and hospital C charges that much. So you can make some decisions and see the transparent costs there, and it makes it 
really, really work well um, if it's used properly. Reference-based pricing plans usually see across the board 20 to 30% savings above PPO plans. And it sounds like a lot, and it is. Um, that's a combination between the reductions in your premium costs because the carriers are giving serious reductions when you use reference-based pricing plans over PPO plans, and also the actual reduction in the claims cost. That's where the biggest chunk of it is. So we're seeing 10 to 25% more savings in hospital facility claims over PPO pricing. That's the bottom line. Um, there are some really, really good PPO networks. I'm not going to badmouth any PPO networks. There are some really, really good ones that are out there. Um, but generally, we see 50 to 65% savings off the bill rates for facilities. And in reference-based pricing, we're seeing 70 to 80% off the bill rates. So um, again, and if you look at this as far as percentages, what we've seen is generally a PPO contract for hospitalizations. We see 300 to 600% of Medicare. That's generally what they pay. But if you're comparing that to 140% of the Medicare rate on a reference-based pricing plan, you can see immediately that there are savings. And, and that really does add up quickly. All it takes is one or two big hospital claims in a year, and you're sold on reference-based pricing. So I, I, that's why I really, really like it. So for the last many years, we've seen reference-based pricing do well across the United States. And now, for the first time uh, in the last year, year and a half, it's actually a viable alternative here on the West Coast. What are the options you have with reference-based pricing? That's a great question. First, you can do full reference-based pricing, meaning that everything is based on Medicare rates, the hospitals, the physicians, and the professional services. That's where you're going to see the greatest savings overall. You may not be able to do that the first year that you do reference-based pricing because sometimes it takes a couple of years to phase everything in. But if you can ultimately get there, uh, that's usually where the greatest savings are in your health plan. If you're already self-funded, though, and you want to look at uh, reference-based pricing, you could jump in on the full reference-based pricing uh, in year one with reference-based pricing. I'm just talking about going from fully insured to self-insured, and now you say, I want to do self-insured with reference-based pricing. Coming off the fully insured market, that's what I'm saying. That's what I mean by saying it's too drastic. The second option we can use is reference-based pricing for hospitals and facilities only, which is the most common, particularly in the first year. We generally see, again, 140 to 150% of Medicare rates being used in those facility-only situations. Um, and then we use a PPO network for the physicians and professional services. Again, this is more gradual phase-in, and people are used to using networks. So this works pretty smoothly. And, um, and again, for a first-year plan, this is, this is usually a, an easy way to do it. And the third way to do it is uh, using reference-based pricing for just your non-network claims when using a PPO uh, for physicians and professional services. Usually when we do that, we put the physicians... Uh, that are non-PPO at 130% of, of Medicare. So a couple of different ways to do it. And again, the most common today is 140% to 150% for hospitals and around 130 to 140% for professional service providers. Um, doctors usually don't argue uh, when you're talking about particularly non-PPO using Medicare uh, rates, 130%, because they're used to being PPO versus non-PPO. So you don't get a lot of pushback. You might get some pushback if you go full RBP, and people, you're taking away that network. Sometimes the doctor's office, not so much the hospitals, they're, they're pretty much used to this now, um, but the doctor's office is where you might get some uh, concerns and, and, and misunderstandings. So if you're going to do it that way, you need to have good people in place, 
what we call concierge services to help um, the providers understand what this is all about and so forth. But there are ways that you can do this that works really, really well. And there are steps that you can take to make sure it's done efficiently and, and your costs are, you know, you have the greatest possible cost savings. So earlier you said if a group wants to sell fun, uh, you said picking the right vendors is very important. What do you recommend? Well, first you want to find the right TPA. And I should say also that you can also choose a carrier for an ASO uh, services, administrative services only services. But generally, we don't recommend that because you're really limited on what a carrier will offer you. You don't have the full flexibility. They have more packaged products and so forth, and you can't. Um, sometimes you can go to bid for stop loss. Sometimes you can't outside of, of their own stop loss. But for example, if you say to a carrier, um, "I've been with you, you know, for the last five years, and you've done a great job for us," uh, but now we'd like to look at reference-based pricing, they're probably not going to allow you to do that. They're probably going to uh, manufacture lots of reasons why you shouldn't do it. Um, when the reality is, they can't do it because they have network contracts in place, and those carriers have to use those contracts because that's that's what that's how they do business. So if you pick a good TPA, they have the flexibility to do it the way you want to do it. If you use the right TPA, they're not locked in. TPAs work for you as the employer, and that's why I usually recommend them. And yes, I will say that I used to work in the TPA business, so perhaps I'm a little bit prejudiced towards TPAs in a good way, but I don't think that anything that I'm saying is inaccurate. Um, you generally have more options available to you because an independent TPA is just that, independent, and they work for you. You know, one of the things that I've seen over the last few decades is the great thing about working with TPAs is that if there's a problem with the plan not working properly, let's say that the UN company is not great, they're not giving you what you want at renewal so you can work on the large claims, let's say, or let's say the PPO network that you have just doesn't cover the new areas that, um, you know, a company might open in other states, the TPA will give you greater flexibility because a carrier, you have to replace everything right. generally. right. And that's why I like TPAs as well. It's another great point. Um, so after you've selected your TPA, the next thing you want to do is focus on basic plan design. Now, you don't need to write your whole plan document yet. Obviously, you don't even know if you're going to do this. But you need enough basic plan design in order to go to bid because the stop-loss carriers, when quoting, needs to know what they're quoting on. So they, they, they need to know whether you're going to do an 80% or a 70% or a 90%. They need to know whether you want to do PPO or whether you want reference-based pricing, whether you're looking at reference-based pricing with facilities only or full RBP or non-network or whatever. So you want to come up with some basic plan design, you know, a 90%. Um, let's say they're going to do hospitals only um, and they're going to do provider, they're going to use a PPO provider for uh, the uh, PPO claims and they're going to have a non-PPO option and put in Medicare for 130% on the non-network side or something like that. Um, or maybe they've decided they want to go all, all in. So you can get quotes that way, but you have to tell the carrier what you need them to quote on. So put some basic information, basic ideas, outlines together of what you'd like to see. And that's not saying that you can't ask for three things. You can say, we want to see it with a PPO for everything, like our current plan, for example. We want to see um, a hospital uh, RBP plan plus a PPO network um, and so forth. So you can do that with a carrier up front. And then you can fine-tune the exact plan design later on. So you found a TPA. You found your basic plan design that you want to go out to bid on. Now you go to get quotes from your stop-loss carriers, and they'll give you the rates on all the options that you want. The next thing that you want to do is find a good utilization management company. And this is so important. And I know, Anthony, this is something very close to your heart because you deal with case management companies all the time. But you want to find one that can help you manage those chronic claims 
because um, that was the number two thing I said, obviously. Uh, manage the hospitals and facilities costs, manage the chronic claims, and I talked about prescription drugs. So once you find a good UM company, you want to look at what options they offer you, and you want to figure out how they're going to help you um, reduce those claim costs. And then after that, the next thing you want to do is obviously look at other components like the prescription drug vendors and so forth. But coming back to the UM company, the better UM company they have, the better case management you have, the better chronic claims management systems they have, the lower the overall cost of the claim. Keep in mind that when you're self-funded, those are your claims dollars that you're paying for, and you want to make sure that you can control all of those costs. A good case management company is invaluable, especially when you're going through renewal. The more information that you have, the better for the carriers because they can see, hey, this is the, you know, this is the prognosis, this is the diagnosis, and Treatment it's plan. easily yeah. right, and it's yeah. easy to explain out, and then they do anticipated claims for the next year. We've had many uh, UM companies in the past and case management companies that just don't give you all the information that you need to properly. Uh, let the renewal carrier or other carriers to properly uh, look at that claim and you might get a laser on that claimant but they probably didn't deserve one if you had the proper information and that's another reason why uh, again shopping the individual components is a good thing because again if you're tied into an ASO contract they have their own case management built into that if you're working with a third-party administrator you can select your own case management company, your own UM company. And by doing that, as Anthony said, we have the ability to find the best and get the best information. I mean, you've seen situations come where you've been able to get rid of lasers altogether, uh, right? And Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, sometimes, a lot of times, these carriers, what they'll do is they'll say, they'll go high in on these. So they'll say, mm -hmm. let's say the group specific is at um, $100,000. They'll immediately put a $250,000 laser on three different people. And then it's up to uh, me as a broker to find out all the information, maybe even go to the to the claimant themselves, the participant, and ask them, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? But a good case management company actually does that for you and writes it down in detail. That way you can say, hey, our anticipated claims next year are only $50,000. So yeah, a good case management company will then um, look at all the past data on, let's say, a certain diagnosis. And then they'll say, based on where this person is right now with, with their diagnosis, that they will only have anticipated, let's say, $35,000 in the next year. And then you bring that back to the renewal carrier. And what they'll say is, you know, they'll look it all up and decide, hey, okay, we don't need that laser at 250 It could be at the group specific of $100,000. Right. So that's, that is, again, that's why I like having those independent components. It could be huge. Um, we've seen tremendous, you know, uh, reductions in potential renewal costs and things like that because of the ability to put in a good uh, a good UM company and a, and a good case management company. So again, all those things are really, really important when you're talking about uh, a self-funded plan. Yeah, it's real smart, especially for an employer. If you don't need to have a laser, yeah. because anything can happen with a large claim, yeah. especially with certain diagnosis. And if you don't have to have one, if you work and get the right uh, information from your case manager, then you can eliminate those altogether. Yeah, and again, that's risk you weren't anticipating. As a CFO, you're he's like, you know, we thought we we're gonna have a, a worst case scenario of this, so next year we don't want to have to put an extra two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollar specific stop loss on on three of these individuals or two of these individuals. That's more risk than I want. So yeah, if we can get those all at the group specific, that's that's all the better. So earlier you were talking about PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. What are the differences between them? Well, 
there's a lot of differences between them. You want to look at um, what they offer as far as the discounts um, off of the average wholesale price. You need to know about what kind of mail order options they offer. You need to know if they can offer things like generic only coverage. Let's say you have a minimum value plan or want to put in a minimum value plan and you only want to cover certain drugs and certain things like generic only and not, not specialty drugs or something like that. You need to know if they have that ability to do that. Uh, how do they manage their costs? You know, what kind of networks do they offer? One pharmacy benefit manager might only work with one one actual prescription vendor. Uh, others might work with several. Uh, there are a lot of good ones out there, a lot of big ones out there. Uh, they have a lot of retail pharmacy uh, facilities like you know, Express Scripts, and there's Proact, and there's Welldyne, and there's all kinds of them. I could name several. But you want to be able to compare those and see what one works the best for you. Do they have the right number um, of, of uh, retail pharmacies in your area? You might be in a small town somewhere, or one of your locations might be in a small town, and maybe that particular network has zero pharmacies available in that small town. So you want to take a look at all of those types of things. Also, you want to look at whether or not that PBM offers rebates, and if they do offer rebates, who are they going to? You've probably heard in the past things like news stories um, and people talking about the fact that, that their doctors are getting these huge rebates from the pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, and, and They want to sometimes push the drugs that are most expensive and the ones that are uh, advertised the most and things like that. And they would give the doctors um, you know, a rebate to promote that drug and write the prescriptions on those drugs. They might give them trips. They might do all kinds of things. But most importantly, they would give them dollar rebates. Well, today... Those rebates are now available to people other than the doctors. And I think that's important because a lot of employers still don't understand that that money is out there. Having a rebate in your PBM contract can give you extra cash coming into your plan. And anything that you can do to lower your costs is obviously really, really important. Um, and also a PBM can provide you with regular data on the most expensive drugs, what alternate drugs are available, um, you know, what, what lists of, of uh, drugs that they have on a particular formulary, something like that. When you get into the big, high-cost specialty drugs, this is so important. A few years back, Hep C was the big deal, right, Anthony? We had to deal with this a lot. Yes, for sure. Um, we had some clients that had to pay you know, $180,000 to $250,000 for Hep C drugs. Uh, yeah, they do cure the disease, but there's a big cost to it. And treatments uh, ran in the beginning from 12 to 24 weeks. Now they're down eight to twelve weeks, um, but you know you started off paying one hundred eighty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for these, um, and then they found out that some of them weren't acting as 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 well as they should have been acting. They had to repeat the cycles and this and that. A lot of things happened. Then they introduced drugs. Um, there was one called the thousand dollar pill, um, and that was like eighty five thousand dollars for a twelve week cycle. Um, it, but Obviously, innovations kept happening. They were testing all these things, and they decided that they needed to have more drugs out there to develop more drugs. These are high-cost drugs, so obviously pharmaceutical companies want to produce high-cost drugs. Then they have to recover, of course, their research and development costs, and I understand that. But things like hep C, they were seeing less than 30% um, effectiveness on certain drugs that were out there, very, very popular drugs that were out in the market. Um, and again, sometimes they had to use them for a year instead of the initial projected 8 to 12 weeks or whatever it was, or 12 to 24 weeks in the beginning. Um, so with more drugs entering the market, they were able to find you know, better drugs with better response rates. Um, and some of the problems they had early on, too, were some people couldn't tolerate those drugs. So with these new advances in drug and so forth... 
people were able to tolerate the drugs better. More drugs kept entering the market, as I said, and eventually the cost started coming down and the response rates uh, grew to 90 to 95%, which is obviously where you want it. Um, now, today, I'm happy to say that um, there have been, again, more drugs introduced onto the markets, and you can actually get hep C cured for around $30,000. But if your particular PBM isn't offering the drugs that cost $30,000 or $35,000, and they're only offering the drugs that are $150,000 to $180,000, then that may not be a PBM that you want to use. So again, you need to dig into the details on these things and find out. A couple of years ago, the highest cost drugs on the market were gene therapy agents, and there was one that was introduced at three hundred and dollars or $374,000. Another one was $850,000, and one was around $475,000. So again, these are important to self-funded employers or groups that might want to look at self-funding because, um, as you can recall, Anthony, they were actually rating up carrier premiums because of the hep C drugs and these specialty drugs a few years back. Right. They were adding. Right. Uh, on a lot of uh, the fully insured carriers, they would say, oh, you have a eight percent increase, but an additional four and a half percent increase because of the new hep C drugs. Even right. if you don't right. have anybody on your plan with hep C, they just they had say, to pool the money. Exactly. They had to pool the money to be able to pay for these things. So it's important. And that's a great thing about self-funding, because you can track these things. You can see exactly where they're at. You can make plan decisions. Again, you can find the right PBM that's going to offer the, 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 the better drugs that have a really good success rate, but at the lower cost than, than the higher ones that they had to keep, keep reintroducing over and over because they weren't working as effectively. So those are some of the things that, that you should you'd think about. So it sounds like if you're a self-insured employer, you're the one actually paying the money into paying for the drugs because you fund those as they come along, but then a lot of times the rebates aren't coming back to you. Right. You should be the ones receiving those, not other entities. Correct. And you made an excellent point. And that's what, as you know, that's what I've been saying for years and years. I've been preaching this. We need to get the rebates back to where, in my opinion, they belong in the hands of the people that are, as you said, actually paying for those drugs uh, for their employees and their cover dependents. And those are the plan sponsors. And that's, that's the entity that, that the PBMs kind of forgot about. You guys are paying for the cost of these drugs, and yet you weren't getting the money back, as Anthony said. So I've been preaching this for quite some time. Um, so if you're self-funded, there's money potentially sitting out there, and you don't want others getting their hands on your money. Wouldn't you rather have that money coming back into your health plan if that's your money? Of course. Yeah, <laughs> I would think so. So how does an employer start getting these rebates? Well, that's a great question. Um, you may not even have known in the past that you could get the rebates. Um, you need to have, of course, a savvy broker like you and I. Um, <laughs> and, and then you need to have uh, a contract in place that does that. What, what we do in our contract is we have a preferred pharmacy benefit manager that offers these rebates. And our contract assures that the employer clients are getting those rebates back into their own hands. And we've had really, really good success with that. So what type of money are we talking about? Well, it depends on the drugs that your participants are taking. You can't always predict those in advance, but usually the rebates come from brand and specialty drugs. Those are the ones that have rebates. We've had clients that are receiving um, over $70,000 in rebates in their first six months alone of, of, of using our programs with the rebate contracts in them. And that's not bad, and it definitely helps the bottom line. So how does a self-funded client get these rebates? Are they mailed a check? Are they given credit? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, they're usually it's usually a credit. Um, you get... Uh, obviously, prescription drug bills on a regular basis. Quite often, it's monthly. Um, usually, these rebates work as uh, on a quarterly basis. Let's say on that prescription bill that comes up that month, which happens to be the month that the rebate is due, um, and you had one hundred twenty thousand dollars 
that you were expected to you know pay for for drugs for that particular uh, build cycle. Um, but your rebate, let's say for that quarter, is thirty five thousand dollars. What they would do is they would take that dollar amount, that $120,000, say, and they would subtract the $35,000 from that. And if you do the math, you're the one that does the math, Anthony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the bottom line is instead of paying the $120,000, they pay $120,000 less $35,000. So your bill is that much less. So it's, it's important that they understand what that credit is. Um, and sometimes this will happen and it's kind of invisible. Employers kind of forget about it. So we make sure they don't forget about it because we bring it to their attention and we show them reminder here, here's what your bill was and here's what your rebate amount was and the net amount that you paid resulted in savings. So we give those reports to them on a regular basis so they can see exactly where the rebates are coming into play. Uh, sometimes they get kind of used to it though because you know they're so used to getting the rebates. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I, I don't have a problem with that at all. I just want to remind them at the end of the year that this money wouldn't have come to them had it not been for the rebate. So it makes us look good, of course, but uh, the bottom line is it helps the employer. Right. Of course, we know PBM contracts are more than just rebates. What else can you expect from a PBM in the way of reporting and the ability to manage the drug costs? Well, we get great data from uh, from our PBMs. You can receive information on the top 25 drugs, the top 50 drugs, um, both in cost and utilization. You can get reports on um, how things are prescribed. Um, for example, let's say there's an $8,000 drug on your list of drugs and you want to know what $8,000, what does that mean? Is that daily? Is that weekly? Is that monthly? Of course, that makes a big difference. Um, so you'll be able to see that information. You can get information on how many people are using mail order versus um, their the uh, brand and, and generic drugs. And that's really good because if you see a lot of people not using mail order that, that could easily because they're on maintenance drugs, you can do something to fix that. We can use plan design there, which we talked about earlier how important that is. We can use plan design to say that, for example, if you're on a maintenance drug, you must use mail order. Give them a couple, two, three months to get their retail fills and get the paperwork filled out and all that. And then you can start seeing savings because the, they're using the uh, mail order program. And it's usually pretty easy. You can also get information on how many people are using the mail order, uh, how many brand drugs versus how many generic drugs and so forth. And that's really important because if you happen to see that a lot of your participants are not using mail order for something like maintenance drugs, you can do something to fix that with plan design. If you offer mail order, uh, you can tell the employees that they get you know three, uh, three months worth of drugs for the price of two. Um, things like that. And it, it saves the employees money. It saves obviously employer money because the mail order drugs generally have much greater discounts over um, things that you would order in a retail pharmacy store. Another thing I've seen out there is plans can now make um, maintenance drugs mandatory yes. that they go through the mail order instead of the retail pharmacies. How they do that is that they say the first two prescriptions you can get at a retail pharmacy and then the uh, let's say Express Scripts will mail them a letter saying, hey, your next, your third one refill, you have to use the mail order program. Right. Otherwise, it's not going to be covered. That's that's the really what we've seen to be the most cost effective way to, to use plan design in your uh, pharmacy plan, your RX plan for your employees. But all of these things can be done with plan designs and you just have to understand that you can do them. Making mandatory uh, mail order for maintenance drugs is a really good cost savings uh, tool that you can have. The ultimate thing here is that 
you have ammunition, you have data, and that's the most important thing. With a self-funded plan, you can see all this stuff and you can make the right decisions. And as, as you know, I've always said plan design is one of the most important things. I've probably said it two or three times already on this, on this mm -hmm. podcast, but that's how you save money in a health plan. Good plan designs work. Um, but they may not work for you. You have to take a look at specifically what works for your population because not all employers are the same. Some have certain needs, some have other needs. So you can custom design these things to make sure that they meet the needs of your specific population. And again, as I said before, that's one of the great things about self-funding. The decisions that you make can be decisions that can control your own destiny. Earlier, you spoke about cost containment in a self-funded plan. What else is important regarding that? Um, compliance, plan document creation. Uh, we talked about the plan design itself. Um, you can create, for example, a core plan to base your ACA affordability calculations on and then buy up plans after that. And if you are a large employer and having to report and so forth um, for ACA, it's very complicated. And we've talked about this many years ago when the ACA started. Um, but that's the best thing you always want to do is have a core plan, base your affordability on that, on that plan, and then have your buy up plans. Um, put in really strong cost containment provisions. We talked about some of the things uh, that you can do. Your core plan can be perhaps a minimum value plan, uh, and then you can design, obviously, uh, buy-up plans after that. So um, it really depends on what the employer's needs are. With self-funding, you can be creative. You can focus on your employee needs and your financial needs as an employer, so it makes it great. Uh, you can also divide up uh, your bills and claims reports by all your locations. You might have 17 locations. You might have 326 locations. You might have only four locations. But whatever the situation is, if you need to divide your costs up by cost centers uh, or uh, geographical locations, you can do that. If you have a good TPA, they'll allow you to split it up any way you want. So I, I always like that. So let's say a group has a high age distribution and they're just not a good candidate for self-funding or they simply just don't want to. What can they do on the fully insured market to contain costs? Well, obviously you're much more limited with fully insured plans, but there are things you can do. A good broker and consultant can ask the right questions to your carrier or carriers to see what kinds of cost containment provisions they even offer. Um, of course, we know the easy quick fixes, which I don't necessarily like, but cutting benefits and narrowing uh, networks, you can do that. But sometimes employers don't want to cut benefits and sometimes they want to um, offer better networks. So, you know, you've got to figure out other things in those cases that you can do. So, again, you want to look at things like the chronic claims management. What kind of programs do the carriers offer? Some actually offer really good um, chronic claims management programs. But if you don't know to ask that question, you won't get an answer and you won't know that there are things that you can do to manage that better within your fully insured plan. Um, they may not be as flexible as a self-funded plan, not anywhere near, I don't think, um, but they still might have some additional options for plan design that you're not aware of. So you just need to know what they what they offer. Um, the broker needs to go in there and talk to the carriers ahead of time and find out, you know, these are the things we offer and ask the right questions so that we can pull the right information um, and so that we can offer the right type of programs to the employer. Uh, there's easier things too, like pulling out things like chiropractic care if you don't use it or podiatry if you don't use it. Maybe you have a vision plan that only three of your people are using. Well, why not put in a voluntary vision plan then instead of paying a fully insured premium to um, to your carriers to allow everyone to have that? If you see that only three or four people are using a particular program or a particular benefit, then those are some of the things you might want to think about. Um, dig into the details of the prescription plans they offer. We talked about how costly drugs are and so forth. Um, 
they may have a dozen or more plans that you can take a look at, but maybe you only saw three because that's what they initially quoted because it's, it's much easier for a carrier when they're pumping out, especially for January 1 quotes, they just pump out their most common, most, you know, widely asked for programs. So they might send you prescription plan uh, quotes on three different plans. And a lot of times they're just built into your rate. So you need to have them always, when you put out the request, break those costs out. And then you need to ask them, what other plans do you have? Um, can we find something that has better, for example, formularies that covers these lower cost drugs on those big specialty drugs that we talked about? Um, you know, hep C drugs to, you know, gene therapy and all those other types of things. If you can take a look at those things, you can make some better decisions. So again, you do have choices, not as much as in the uh, self-funded market, but you do have choices. The bottom line here is you just need to dig into the, into the detail a little bit and see what they offer. And then you want to find out if they offer claims data. Um, do they offer reports on utilization? Do they offer reports? If you're under 100 lives, probably not. But if you're over 100 lives, you might be able to ask. Um, sometimes they're going to come back with you. A fully insured carrier is going to give you the standard line of, we can't give that to you because of HIPAA privacy laws. I will tell you firsthand as a privacy and security consultant that they can give it to you, but you just have to ask for it properly. If you ask for de-identified information, they are allowed to provide it. It comes down to whether or not their policies and procedures allow them to. And a lot of times it's just a matter of they don't want you to have the information because they don't want to lose the group. So if they stay silent on it, um, they're thinking that you'll just renew and not think about it and, and not worry about it and not and it won't be important to you. But it should be important to you. So you want to look at the large claims. You want to look at the trends. You want to um, figure out as much as you can. Again, not the flexibility you have with a self-funded program. But if you ask the right questions and get some additional uh, de-identified uh, claims data, loss ratios at least, um, you know, they might be able to just tell you the number of claims that they've had over 10,000, 20,000, 50,000. You, we've seen that before. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we can do that. Then it'll give you a better idea. Um, when they give you nothing, that's when I would worry. What are they hiding? <laughs> but you really want as much claims data as you can. Um, and keep in mind, as I said before, size does matters. If you're under, if you're under hundred lives, you're probably not going to get much at all. But if you're 500 lives, uh, or a thousand lives or 200 lives or something, um, you should be able to get the information. And if I were you as an employer, I would definitely demand it. So what kind of savings have you seen in the fully insured marketplace once you examine them and see what cost containments that they currently offer? Well, it really depends on the carrier, but we've been able to reduce uh, the the premiums from anywhere between 3% to 10%. Um, I know recently it's been more like 3 to 7, you think, Anthony, 3 yeah. to 7 or 3 to 8. Yeah. But, it, you know, uh, in the past we've been able to get a little bit more than that in savings. It really depends. Um, but simply by asking the right questions and examining the data, you can you can make some better decisions. And again, it's three to ten percent or three to eight percent. Um, that's a lot from a fully insured premium. But comparing that obviously to the reductions that we can get for all the design changes and uh, funding mechanism changes and reference based pricing and all these things on the self funded side, um, you can see why there's such a great vast difference uh, in, in savings between the fully insured market and the self funded market. And hopefully today's discussion will. Um, help employers understand that a little bit better. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, thank you, Anthony, for taking over my seat today uh, and asking me the questions. Well, I really welcome. do appreciate it. All no right. No problem. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. 
We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.